How can you get Rocky Mountain spotted fever if you don't live in the Rocky Mountains? Why should physicians in the South know or care about this disease? You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing vector-borne diseases. In this segment, we will be focusing on Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Karen Yates, an epidemiologist with the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. She received her master's in biology with an emphasis in ecological field assessment from Pittsburgh State University. Welcome, Mrs. Yates. Thank you. We are pleased to have you on the show. So, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. What causes that? Is that a virus or a bacteria or a parasite? It's actually a bacteria that makes its living inside of a tick. It's a very specialized type of bacteria. It's an obligate intracellular bacteria. And so it spends its entire life either in the tick or in the host. Is it called Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever Parasite or tick or what is it called? It's a rickettsial type of bacteria. They're a very interesting group of bacteria. They are found all over the world and all have a life cycle that involves an arthropod vector and some kind of a, a vertebrate host. They don't necessarily harm the arthropod vector, though. Is that correct? No, no, they don't. They don't even necessarily harm the vertebrae host, either. Absolutely right, yeah. It's possible to, for some mammals, small mammals, to be chronically infected and still be able to, you know, conduct whatever they need to do. Their small mammal lives. Yes, they're going to work and things like that. Yes. Does this rickettsia have a specific name? Is it Rocky Mountain Spotted Rickettsia or...? Yes, it's Rickettsia rickettsii. Was this the first one discovered or something like that? Science has known about Rickettsia rickettsii for over 100 years. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, so it lives in an arthropod and then... Sometimes a human is unlucky enough to get bitten. What's the natural epidemiology of this disease? I always thought it was in the Rocky Mountains, and so every time I saw that word when I was in medical school, I ignored it since I had no plans to go there. So where where does it occur in a country? Well, it does occur in the Rocky Mountains. It occurs in the Rocky Mountain wood tick, but it also occurs in other kinds of ticks. It also is able to live in other kinds of ticks. The American dog tick really has a very wide distribution across the whole eastern United States. And then there is also a brown dog tick that is also widely distributed. It tends to have maybe a little bit more southern distribution. So you have any idea how many cases of Rocky Mountain spotted fever there are in the United States every year or even in Missouri? Nationally, the incidence goes up for Rocky Mountain spotted fever every year. Now, there are some considerations that we, you know, we need to think about, which is if we're basing the numbers on serologic testing, there's a certain level of uncertainty in those numbers. But definitely, you know, the numbers nationwide are going up every year and here in Missouri, they're definitely going up every year. Do you know how many cases you had in Missouri last year? Those numbers have not been fully QA'd and processed yet, but for 2005, 
in Missouri, we had 128 cases. Oh, so it's not that incredibly uncommon. No, no. And then in the United States, it was just over 1,900 cases for 2005. Wow. Does this only happen in the summer? Pretty much. I mean, for example, in Arizona, it could also occur in the cooler months. It's always possible that that somebody could be exposed. Ticks are very, very, very hardy. They can be active in February if the, the ground temperatures are, you know, at 40 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you have a little winter thaw and the ticks come out, you definitely can become infected. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Karen Yates, an epidemiologist with the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services. She received her master's in biology with an emphasis in ecological field assessment from Pittsburgh State University. Today we are discussing vector-borne diseases, In this segment, we have been focusing on Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. What are the symptoms of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever? Let me guess, there's spots in a fever. Yes, but unfortunately, the spots don't develop right away. Usually what happens first is a person has a a very nonspecific flu-like disease that starts with a fever, nausea, vomiting, There are usually myalgias, and and some people have headache and anorexia. What it usually takes several days after disease onset before the rash starts to develop. Does the rash have a particular uh, appearance? Yes, it's a macular papular rash, and it's very characteristic. The the old-timers, 100 years ago, old-timers called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever the black measles. And actually, the rash, if a biopsy is taken from the rash, that's a great way to diagnose it because what's happening is that the bacteria focuses on the endothelial cells and is generally not found in the bloodstream in numbers you know, where it could be isolated. So to, to find Rocky Mountain spotted fever, to confirm the diagnosis, a skin punch biopsy of the rash is very useful. What about the fever? Fever is part of the title, too. Is there anything characteristic about the fever? It's unusually high, it's unusually low, it comes the first day. Anything about that that might give a hint? Well, it's a high fever, and it doesn't abate. So a low fever several days and a stomach ache, probably not Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Okay, and what about laboratory tests? You mentioned a skin biopsy. Right. The skin biopsy is really the best specimen if you want to actually isolate the bacteria's DNA and confirm that you have a, an acute infection. Otherwise, you'll need to go with a serology. And the problem with the serology is that the commercial tests that are available are not very specific. And really, to confirm a case, it's necessary to do an acute and convalescent specimen and then look for the rise in the titers. These titers, are they done by one laboratory in the United States, like at the CDC, or are they offered by health departments or commercial laboratories? What facility does the titers? Lots of laboratories do titers, and CDC actually is now trying to facilitate state public health laboratories being able to do this same kind of testing. They're providing the states with the reagents and so on so that we will be able to conduct those kinds of tests. And what we like about that is that this will provide the state 
public health department with good information about the real distribution and timing and availability of information about the patients that help us get risk factor information that will all, you know, eventually turn around to better public education programs. Is this a reportable disease? Do the doctors have an obligation to report it if they suspect it or diagnose it? Yes, definitely. It's reportable across the United States. If the physician makes a clinical diagnosis and there are no laboratory results supporting that, the case is usually not counted. So we really do try to to encourage laboratory testing. Have there been any deaths in Missouri from Rocky Mountain spotted fever in the recent years? Yeah, since 2001, we've had one death. And I think that physicians are becoming more and more aware of the necessity of treating for Rocky Mountain spotted fever before the diagnostics come back because it is the type of disease that can turn very quickly into multiple organ involvement and and ultimately just the death of the patient. And a treatment is generally doxycycline, is that correct? Absolutely, yes. What about the prevention efforts? I assume that those generally relate to prevention of all tick-borne diseases. Yes, it seems very obvious, and it's almost embarrassing to talk about it because it seems so simple. But the the two main thrusts of trying to prevent tick-borne disease are to avoid tick bites. And, of course, that can be accomplished by using an insect repellent that contains DEET as an active ingredient. The other possibility is to, you know, wear long sleeves, long pants when you're out in tick habitat and just watch for ticks crawling on your clothes. And then that leads to the the second thrust of the prevention message, which is doing tick checks really can help prevent disease. There is a correlation between the length of attachment of a tick and the level of risk for disease transmission or the, the likelihood of disease transmission. So tick checks, especially if they're performed daily or when necessary, several times a day, can interrupt that cycle of the the tick being able to inject the bacteria into the host. I want to thank Karen Yates, an epidemiologist with the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, who has been our guest. We have been discussing vector-borne diseases. In this segment, we focus on Rocky Mountain spotted fever. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Be safe. Be informed. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.